let's get in the Word. If you can track down a Bible, please do so. We're in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We've got Bibles in the book racks in the chair in front of you. And in the Bibles that we have here, Psalm 139 is on pages 536 and 537. If you could turn there, what I'll do is I'll read the passage, I'll read the entire chapter there, and then I'll pray and we'll get to work. This is Psalm 139, starting at the heading there. It says, for the director of music of David, a psalm. Here's verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depth, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have... I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, as we have opened your word together, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us. We're praying that you would help us to know who you are. And we're praying, Lord, that you would incline our hearts to worship you. Lord, you are the sovereign God, and we stand in awe of you. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. A.W. Tozer was a preacher in Chicago in the 1940s and 50s, and he wrote a little book called The Knowledge of God, where he looked at the attributes of God. He looked at several different attributes of God. Now, there's a line in there that is very, very important, and I think it's profound And I think it's right on. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you consider God, Tozer would say, and I agree, is the most important thing about him. Because whether or not you perceive God accurately or whether or not you 
consider him appropriately, meaning some, some people don't even consider God. They don't even think about God. But what comes into your mind when, when the topic of God comes up, Tozer is saying that's the most important thing about you because it is out of that that you live your life. It's out of your understanding of God that you will make your choices, that you will, be, uh, that you will have your motivations, that you will live your life and say the things that you say and do the things that you do and live in the way that you live. It will be on account of your knowledge of God. He goes on to say it's not only the individual Christian that this idea is important to, but it's the entire company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. So how we think about God and how we talk about God is one of the most important features of our church. So it's very, very important for us every so often to simply open the word and recognize there are portions of scripture that tell us about him. And we need to sit with that, and we need to reflect on that, and we need to consider whether or not our understanding of God is accurate. Now, I was having a conversation this morning. None of us come in here as a blank canvas. We all have presuppositions and pre-understandings of what we think God is like. What we need to be willing to do is allow the word to shape and reshape how we consider God. We need to allow God to actually tell us what he is like from his own words. And that's what Psalm 139 does. It tells the subject matter of Psalm 139 is God. And he says, this is what I am like. Now, what's interesting, and I want to get ahead of it, is when you read Psalm 139, there's a mixed response to God. The commentators look at this, and they kind of try to figure out, what's the tone of, of this psalm? Because there are portions of it that feel like David, who's writing it, is troubled by God. David is looking at God and considering the magnitude of God and, and is kind of put off by that. Like, I can't believe you're like that, God. What can I do about the fact that you know everything about me? I feel hemmed in. There are certain parts of the psalm that feel like he's troubled by God or overwhelmed by God, but then there are parts of it that feel like it's worship, that he's saying, I praise you for these wonderful works of yours. And so the psalmist or the, the commentators are looking at it going, which is this? Is, is the psalm about being troubled by God or is the psalm about worship? And my answer is, it's actually both. Part of the experience of dealing with God is coming to see him as he truly is, and that will be off-putting because he is holy. He's different. He's other than us. He's separate from us, and so we, we deal with him, and we have to come to grips with what he overwhelming to us. But if we're willing to, by faith, acknowledge that and deal with him as he has, uh, has entreated himself to us, we come to the place of worship, and we come to see these things not as a threat, but actually as a, as a source of comfort because God actually is these things for our benefit and for our sake. Well, let's look at it then. Four headings. Um, the God who knows me, the God who surrounds me, the God who made me, and the God who tests me. Four, four different headings here. They, they are actually divided, um, and we'll look at them one at a time. Here's the first one, verses 1 to 6. The God who knows me. And what David is acknowledged here is God. I'll give you the, um, the big word um, that the theologians come up with. This is funny. Somebody, somebody said this once, and it made me chuckle. A theologian said, we invent these words for job security. 
because then you have to ask us what they mean. But here's the word, and you'll know a couple of them. One of them, I wonder if you will. But the first one is omniscient. God is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. He has all knowledge. He is fully understanding of all things. God knows everything. And that's what David is wrestling with here in verses 1 to 6. He says, you have searched God. You've searched me, Lord, and you know. God, you know me. You're all-knowing, but then you have looked at me, and you've searched me, and actually this will be the bookend at the, the final verses as well. He says, you've searched me, and you know everything. You, you know me. You know me better than I know myself. And he goes on to explain the comprehensive knowledge of God in verses 2 and 3. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. God knows what we're thinking, and he knows what we're like. Even from a distance, God is able to have knowledge of what's going on on the interior. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And he's, he's having these pairings here where he's saying, in every category of life, God is fully aware of me. In every aspect of my life, whether I'm going out publicly, whether I'm going out and doing things in front of people, or whether I'm at my house lying down, God is fully aware of who I am. It was funny, yesterday, um, Ash was working, and I was with the kids, and we were kind of out and about all day, and we bumped into people from church. And it's funny, because my going out and my lying down, uh, what, how, how I dress on Sunday morning is I want to I be respectful. I want to dress in a certain way. How I dress ordinarily is like a skater boy. And so these people from church saw me out in public, and they're like, what? What are you doing with my, you know, backwards cap on and van shoes and all of this, and in shorts and whatever? But anyways, whether we're the, the public, you know, forward-facing aspect of our lives and the private parts of our lives, God is fully aware. He knows us. He knows everything about us. There, there's, not a cat, there's not a category of your life that is partitioned off from God. Where it's like, I do all these things, and God's aware of that, but this is my private stuff that he has no access to. No, no, no. God knows it all. There's no part of your life that is hidden from him. Even the interior, private life of the thoughts, and private things that you would want to say, God knows that. Look at verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Some of us have filters, right? Things come into our brain where we're like, Hmm, I want to say that, but I know I shouldn't, and we don't say it. God knows that even the things that we filtered out, he hears that as well. He knows our thoughts. He knows what we would communicate if we were unedited. He knows everything. He knows the things that we would say. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. God is fully aware of every aspect of who you are. Completely knowledgeable about that. And here's how it feels then. If you're going to recognize that God has that sort of comprehensive knowledge of you, it's actually a problem. Verse 5, you hem me in. Behind and before, you lay your hand on me. And how I'm reading that is, this is kind of an acknowledgement that I feel entrapped. Because you know everything, God, I am closed in. I'm encapsulated. I don't have any freedom here. You just know everything about me. Um... It's kind of like this. I'm, I'm 6'1", and beds are, what, 75 inches or 80 inches, and so every bed that I ever get in, my feet are at the end of it. 
one of the first things that I do is kick that sheet out so that my feet have freedom, right? Because, and if you're taller, you're, you're nodding. If you're shorter, you're like, what are you talking about, dude? Um, but yeah, you, if the sheet is like under the bed, like at a hotel where people do an exceptional job at that, you just feel like you're entrapped, right? So you got to kick that thing out as hard as you can and get some freedom there. That's what David is saying here. He's like, God's knowledge of me is, is encompassing me, and I feel hemmed in. I, I feel entrapped by this thing. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. There's a part of God and his knowledge of me that is troubling. Because there is nothing that I can hide from him. There is no freedom from him. And honestly, one of the aspects of, of being a person and the feature of sin is we want autonomy. We want freedom. We want to make our own choices without reference to anyone else. In fact, that's one of the, the key features of sin. I don't know if you've ever considered this before, but way back in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve were eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, what they were trying to do was circumvent God. Uh, Don Carson, one of the professors at the school I attended, he, he puts it like this. He says, part of, a part of sin is the de-godding of God, meaning if there's a way to do my life where I don't have to deal with God, that's what I would prefer. And, and the, the thing is, every person I've ever met, that's the inclination of their heart. That's, the, that's a feature of sin. We want to do life without having to answer to anybody else. So when we begin to wrestle with a God who knows everything, it troubles us deep. We feel hemmed in by him. We feel entrapped by him. It is too wonderful for us too lofty for us to consider, it's too much. In fact, a, a French philosopher put it like this, if there is a God, we can't be free. If there's a God who sees everything, then we're dehumanized. If there's a God who controls everything, that's unconscionable. Because if there's a God, we don't have freedom. And this is an unbelieving philosopher, but what he's recognizing is, if there's a God like Psalm 139 talks about, that's a problem for human auto autonomy. I don't like that. So David is wrestling with this God who is all-knowing, and we too have to wrestle with this God and recognize this God knows everything about us. There's no hiding anything from him. He is all-knowing. Well, secondly, in verses 7 to 12, this God is also, here's the, the big word, omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. This God surrounds me. This God is everywhere at all times. And so David begins to reflect on that, and he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And he's asking that rhetorical question of, no matter where I go, God, you're there. There's no place that I could go to. There's no plane ticket that I could buy that would land me in a location where God's not already there. There's no place in all of anywhere where God is not. He is omnipresent, and he says, he reflects on it in verses 8 and 9. If I go up to the heavens, so that's the vertical axis, I could go as high as possible. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths of Sheol, if I go into the depths of, of the grave, you're there. Vertical axis, high as I can, low as I can, God's there. How about east and west? He says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea. So now it's that horizontal axis he's saying. I could go as far in this direction as possible or as far in that direction as possible. And the thing is, wherever I land, God is there. There is no place that I can flee from his presence. He is inescapable. 
He says, even there, verse 10, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And then using metaphorical language, he says, even in those dark places where you might think God wants, no bit, wants nothing to do with that place, even in those dark places, God is there. Look at verses 11 and 12. I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light becomes night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is light for you. He's saying, I can't go anywhere where you are not, because you are omnipresent. You are, you are present in all places at all times, and I cannot escape you, even those places where I wouldn't imagine God being there. Even, even if there are locations that you go, okay, God, he'd hang out in a church. He'd hang out with a bunch of believers. He probably doesn't want to be there. You go there, and what do you find? God is also there. God is everywhere, and he says, I cannot flee from you. Where could I go where I could flee from your presence? Interestingly, the prophet Jonah used the exact same language. The prophet Jonah was given an assignment, and God said to him, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites, and I want you to declare my words to them. And he says, God, I don't like Ninevites. I don't like Nineveh. I don't like Ninevites. I don't want anything to do with that. And so even though God told Jonah very specifically, You're gonna, I want you to go here, and I want you to declare my word to these people, Jonah says, uh-uh. And he actually goes in the opposite direction. He goes to a port town called Joppa. He gets on a ship of unbelieving people. He sails out into the sea, into the darkness, and he's going, I'm escaping God. God wants me to do something that I don't want to do, so I'm fleeing from him. And so, you know, Jonah's running from God, and he's very comfortable. In fact, he's napping. He's sleeping, and there's this huge storm that comes over the sea. And what, what they realize is he's running from God, and he's, he's hundred, probably hundreds of miles from shore, out in the darkness, out in, out in the depths, and he finds out, oh, crud, God is here. God wants me to do something, and he's not giving up on this. God sent a storm to bring me back, and he gets thrown overboard, and if you guys have heard the story before, he gets swallowed, and he's inside the belly of a fish in a dark place, and he begins to pray because he's realizing even in the belly of the fish, God is there, and he comes to his senses, he begins to repent, and he begins to confess God's pursuit over him. He's trying to flee from God's presence, but what he's finding out is there is nowhere that, that Jonah can get to where God is not there. And this is important for us because some of us are going to look at life and we go, man, following God, it's, it's tough. And you might begin to think, I'd like to run away from this. I'd like to run away from God's assignment for my life. He's asking me to love people that I don't love. He's asking me to do ministry that I want nothing to do with. I'm going to flee from him. The problem is there that you can go where God is not already there. And so for David, this is a problem, but it becomes a good problem because he's, re he's wrestling with the God who is real, the God who is real. The third thing that we find is that God is his maker, verses 13 to 18. God is our maker. This is the one most of us don't know. The big word is omnificent. God is, he has unlimited creative ability to make. He is the maker of all things. God is the God who made us. Verses 13 to 18. And he describes it at that personal level again. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God, you, you, made, you made me. I, you, you're the one who dreamt me up. You're the one who fashioned me. That inmost being. He's saying, 
the, at the core of who I am, my soul, my personality, the, the intricate parts of me that are inmost. He's saying, this is your doing, God. You've made me. You have that creative control over my life. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He says, verse 14, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. He's saying, when I was conceived and I was being fashioned in the, in the unseen places, that was your doing, God. And I worship you because of that. I praise you for these fearful, wonderful works of yours. I know that full well. You made me even in that secret place. Now, there are things called ultrasound machines, and like we look at the pictures now, or we watch the ultrasound in, in real time. And I've got I've got a couple kids, so I know what that moment was like when when the ultrasound goes on, the heartbeat starts, you know, pumping through the speakers there, and you see life, and I'm just, you know, streams of tears coming down my face, or. Um, the Pregnancy Care Center, a ministry that we partner with in Rockford, they have an ultrasound uh, space there at their facility. They call it the sacred ground of the facility because there are people who will go in there and they'll use that ultrasound machine, young, young moms, and they'll use the ultra, ultrasound machine, and all of a sudden they have this glimpse into that secret place. And they realize this is the handiwork of God. There is something fearful and wonderful happening there. David's saying, before the invention of ultrasound machines, he's saying, God, you were able to see what was going on with me when I was being fashioned. You were there in that secret place when I was woven together in the depths of my mom. He uses colorful language here, the earth, but he says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God, you are my maker, and you saw me, my Im embryonic body, you saw my unformed body in that secret place, and you have a record of my life. All of my days are written in your book before even one of them came to happen. That's talking about, he's start to finish. He's saying, my life was made by you and belongs to you. You know, at the point of chin and even beforehand, if you consider the mind of God, in his creative work, he says, my unformed body. And then, you know, the, we're kind of getting to this, the ordination of all of our days, meaning even the final days, the days on our deathbed. God, you know my life. And, and you made my life, and it all belongs to you. And what it's saying is, start to finish, I owe my existence to you, God. And you then have purview. You have a concern for my entire life. So this gets into the realm of, uh, it, the issues of sanctity of life, right? When we begin to think about life at conception and life at the end of life on the deathbed, we have to acknowledge that the Bible has something to say here. That's why these verses are so important in the conversation about things like abortion and euthanasia. We, we look at people's conditions of being embryonic with an unformed body or being on their deathbed, and you're looking at what quality of life do they have? And then we begin to think, well, maybe we could just, you know, take away that person's life and make it better. And the Bible says, that's not your business because every day belongs to God. It's all his. He is the maker. And obviously, these are very politically charged topics, but I'm trying to help you see what the Bible says here. 
um, God is the one who has creative control. And we have to come to grips with this God who is our maker and how to live under his sovereign rule. So he says, verse 17 and 18, having considered these things, he says, how precious, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. The way that you think, these things are precious. And were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. He's beginning to just wrap his head and his heart around this, and he's going, the way that you are, God, is unexplainable. The, the grandiosity of who you are, God, I can think about it, but if I were to try to number how many thoughts I would have about you, they're innumerable. The, the sum of them is innumerable. They are more than the sand, the grains of sand. I can't even count how many things are incredible about you. It's limitless. So here he's coming to that conclusion of, God, you are the one who made me. You have ownership of my life as my creator. So I need to learn how to live for you. And so in the 24, the fourth point here is, this is the God who tests us, who search, the God who searches us. And what happens here, David having reflected on the character of God, he's willing to say, God, I'm on your side. That's the thing that he's doing here. He's declaring allegiance to God. I'm considering who you are. I'm considering what you're like. I'm on your side. I want my life to align to yours. I want to do the things that are pleasing to you. And then having expressed that, we'll look at it here in a moment, then he goes, oh, oh, wait a minute. You know everything. You know me better than I know myself. You know my motivation. You, you know my, my inconsistency. You know that I could declare an allegiance to you, but you could look at that and examine it and see what's really going on there. He says, I'm committing myself to you, but now I'm recognizing you. So why don't you look at me and show me if there's anything in me that is inconsistent with your heart and then teach me how to walk in your ways. Let's look at it here. He says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. And this part of the psalm feels kind of disjointed from the rest of it. But, but David is writing from a, a situation where there are literal armies coming against him. He's, he lived his life in, in a situation of ongoing hostility toward him, and he's looking at these actual armies, and they're, they're threatening his life, and he's saying, God, if only you would do something about that. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. So he, he says, here's my commitment. I'm on your side, God. Here's how I feel about it. Verses 21 and 22, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have not a hatred for them. I count them my enemy. In other words, David is looking at people who are literal armies against the people of God, seeking to do harm against God and his followers, and he's saying, I'm with you, God. I don't like that. And he uses very strong language which actually is no longer appropriate for us today. The New Testament gives further clarity about how we ought to deal with unbelievers. The New Testament, Derek Kidner puts it like this. He's a commentator. He says, in the day of salvation, the New Testament will redirect this fighting spirit, but will endorse its single-mindedness. Devotion to God, the New Testament says, absolutely. But no longer do we do it with this militant spirit. We, we don't do it with this fighting spirit. We use the, the, the weapons that God wants us to wield. 
the New Testament tells us, to, the Lord himself tells us, love your enemies and pray for them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who revile you. So what David is saying here is, God, I'm on your side, and I can show it to you by my military devotion. What we recognize is we have a single-minded devotion. It looks a little different now. We're not going to go out and punch somebody in the, in the mouth, right? You don't follow God. Um, but we, we are so committed to the things of God that we are devoted to him. And here we come to that final section where he says, okay, I'm committed, but I know you know better than I do. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, look into my heart and tell me what you find. I'm devoted to you, I'm committed to you, but I also recognize you, you could see something I don't see. Um, I, can, I can believe, I can self-deceive myself into thinking I'm fully devoted to God. And then God could pull back the curtains and go, a lot of your motivations are not in my direction, God could say. The, the things that you're doing um, are, are lacking in that purity of heart. God, God can show us, and that's what David is saying. Invite that examination. Allow God to look into the recesses of your heart to show you what's really there, to see if there are any offensive ways in you, and then commit to following his leadership as he leads us in the way everlasting. So what David is doing here is he's saying, I'm entrusting myself to God. I'm entrusting myself to God. He did this in real time at, at one point in his life, in 2 Samuel 24. David, he was a man after God's devoted, the Bible says that, but he also made some, some poor choices along the way. One of the poor choices that I want to highlight today is the time when he took a uh, census of his military. He counted everybody, so that way he could say, dude, I got a huge military, and we can do a lot of things around here. He was relying on his own strength. And so he numbers all of the fighting men in his army, and God then confronts him through a prophet, through a seer. And the, the prophet says, David, you screwed up here. Some of your own leaders told you not to do this, and you did it anyways. And he says, you have three options here. You, you can pick one of these three. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of fleeing from your enemies, three day, days of plague. And David says, uh, th this is Second Samuel chapter 24. David says, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of humans, is how he puts it. And what is he doing? He's saying, God is great, and he knows everything, and I offended God. I sinned against him. I made choices that weren't reflective of his heart. And in my choosing of what we're going to do about it, I am trusting myself to him. I could go out and try to fix this on my own. I could try to make amends and do these different things. And the Israelites did that from time to time, and it didn't work out well. And many Christians do that today when we sin and we go, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try harder, and I'm going to prove my commitment to God. And really, that's running away from God. What we're supposed to do is entrust to him. And we can say, I'm going to place my life in his hands because his mercy is great. And I screw up royally, but he is the kind of God who I want to deal with because his mercy is so great. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, God, I'm committed to you, but I also recognize my commitments mean nothing. So why don't you search me? Show me what's, what's really going on here. 
See if there are offensive ways and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, that is getting us into the realm of the good news of the gospel. Entrusting ourselves to God because of his ability to save us. Entrusting ourselves to God knowing that we are sinful and frail. That no matter how resolute our commitments might be, we will often fail and fall short. We do fail and fall short and we sin against God and against his ways. But what we do is we go to God and we entrust ourselves into him and in his saving ways. And he is able to guide and lead us with his hand. We see that show up multiple times here in our text. I want to point it to you, point it out once more to you. Here it is in verse five. When he was thinking about God's knowledge and how it encompassed him, he said in verse five, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand on me. And in this moment, I think he's saying it in a negative way. It feels like you've got me. And I don't have that freedom that I was hoping for. Then he says, if I, when I consider your omnipresence and I'm trying to flee from, from you, anywhere I go, you are there. Verse 10, he says, even there, no matter where I land, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God is, by his hand, caring for his own. Of the New Testament, then, because when the Lord is talking to his disciples and they're wondering about the future and they're wondering about what, what's going to happen, and Jesus is able to say this in John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, To those who entrust themselves to him, he says, I give them eternal life. I, in other words, he's basically saying, I, I lead them, I give this to them, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is, was willing to go to the cross and die in our place. And he was willing to give us the righteousness that he earned. He was willing to save us to the uttermost, and he is willing to, by his hand, hold us firmly. That's the good news of the gospel, that we are a people dealing with this holy, awesome, all-knowing, all-present God and he, he made us, and he sees our inconsistency, and he sees his son in place so that we have eternal life. He leads us in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone in here and those who are watching online. I pray that you would help each and every one of us to recognize who you are. The all-knowing, ever-present, creative maker of all people, who has the ability to look into the deep recesses of our hearts and see what's truly going on there. And even still, you love us. You sent your son to die in our place so that we could be forgiven, made right again. Jesus, the righteous one, was willing to die for to bring us to God. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. Now, Lord, search us, show us any offensive ways in us, and lead us in the way everlasting for Jesus' sake. Amen.